Bloomberg Intelligence is brought to you by CME Group, the world's leading derivatives marketplace, offering the widest range of global benchmark products across all major asset classes. CME Group, where risk meets opportunity. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, the everything rally that investors enjoyed in 2019 appears to be continuing here in the early parts of 2020 to get a sense of what the risk reward scenario is for investors. Right now, we welcome Mark Heppenstall, Chief Investment Officer of Penn Mutual Asset Management. They have about $28.5 billion under management based in Philadelphia. But Mark joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Mark, again, a, a fantastic performance in financial markets last year, a good start to the year. What are the risks to the market from your perspective? Well, I, you know, I do think that um, the geopolitical risks, um, certainly with what's going on with Iran, the tensions there, um, clearly the coronavirus is uh, front and center, and it seems as though the second case arriving here in the United States is enough to pressure uh, equity markets some today and lower interest rates. So, um, but, you know, generally our outlook is for a more stable uh, market, both equities and interest rates this year. And I think that's really resulting from uh, the Fed uh, honestly wanting to get out of the spotlight, move to the side, keep interest rates where they are. And we think that's going to be uh, really an outcome where uh, both equities and interest rates are more range bound this year as opposed to dramatic moves like we've seen the previous two years. There's been a common theme where people say that bonds and stocks are sending different messages with bonds rallying, typically indicating some negativity, pessimism about global growth, stocks rallying, indicating uh, optimism. You said you disagree. You don't think that these narratives are inconsistent. Why? Well, I would say on the short term, like you get a day like today where fear enters the market, you can, you're going to see uh, a situation where bonds and stocks act differently. However, over the long term, I do think that the fact interest rates are so low, they are so unattractive versus other alternatives, um, and equities, I think, are a big part of that equation. Um, it really forces investors to take more risk when interest rates really sit where they do today. So I think over the long term, that's a supportive of valuations. And I do think that, you know, and clearly that, you know, the, the monetary don't fight the Fed worked um, in late 2018 and it worked in 2019. So I, I think that's also part of the equation. And last year, you know, the Fed uh, at the beginning of the year was expected to really move interest rates higher. So the fact that everything rallied last year in response to lower Fed interest rates, you know, I think makes sense. Mark, it's an election year this year. How do you typically think about your portfolio and positioning in a presidential election year? Well, I, I will say the pull from the middle, um, from I would say both parties really, I think means the outcome for the election is going to have significance for uh, markets. And it doesn't necessarily mean that stocks are going to scream higher or scream lower depending on which party wins. But I do think in terms of winners and losers will be quite different um, depending on uh, the outcome of this year's presidential election. So, And we've been involved heavily in uh, the fixed income markets. That's where we tend to focus um, our investment activity. And so 
you know, certainly healthcare is an area that has been under some pressure there for fear that, uh, you know, there could be dramatic changes uh, for the health insurance in the United States. So that, you know, is again something that uh, the outcome, I think, will de- deliver different winners and losers next year. High yield bonds, they've been on a tear, uh, at least through the last couple of days when we saw the price of oil really tank. Wow. Uh, Crude trading on the NYMEX now, $54.48 on a barrel. That's down from the end of the year when it was 63. It's almost down $10 since the end of last year. Amazing. Uh, And you are seeing high yield debt underperform uh, other types of credit as a result of this due to their energy component. What's your view uh, on, on this space? Well, I, I do think when the double B universe is trading sub 4% where it sits or close to it today, you know, it's hard to make a case that um, I would say high quality, high yield makes a lot of sense. So, you know, I, I do think there are better opportunities for total return within uh, the investment grade corporate bond market and also within certain parts of the securitized securities market. So, you know, I, I will say I think generally consumer balance sheets are in better condition than corporate balance sheets. So I think if you're going to take credit risk, you're much more um, um, paid well to do it and rewarded in consumer credit as opposed to corporate credit. So are you underweighting high yield right now? We are. Yeah, we're looking for opportunities to lighten um, our high yield exposure and upgrade to um, investment grade and to securitized in particular for um, our strategic income fund, which is really a go anywhere fixed income strategy. When did you start doing that? Well, probably towards the second half of last year, um, you know, when we generally, you know, at the high end, we may have 10 to 15 percent of high yield exposure within our strategic income fund. But we've been gradually reducing that. And again, you know, we, we're finding similar types of spreads for highly rated securitized products. The residential mortgage backed securities market in particular last year, they underperformed partly as a result of higher prepayment field as uh, fears as mortgage rates declined. So that's an opportunity where if our outlook is for more stable rates this year, that should outperform corporate credit, for example. How about credit quality in your portfolio? We're 10, 11 years into this uh, economic cycle. Uh, people are concerned perhaps about credit quality. What are you seeing in your portfolio? Well, we, you know, we do think that, um, you know, good, solid credit research, especially um, on the corporate credit side, is, is critical today, given where um, valuations sit. So, you know, our corporate credit team, you know, they really focus across the credit spectrum, both investment grade and high yield, and they've done a terrific job in terms of, of navigating these markets. And I will say last year, even though generally it was an everything rally, there were pockets of weaken, weakness, especially among lower rated high yield credit. So energy, some certain triple C uh, rated securities last year really underperformed. So that's been an area uh, where we have been underweight. What kind of returns can people expect from a credit portfolio right now that takes a bit of risk, uh, doesn't go crazy, but is trying to operate and getting a little carry in this environment? Well, you know, the starting point really for all financial asset pricing is the risk-free rate. So when you have the 10-year yield trading now below 1.7%, you know, to me, it's, it's hard to make a case that you're going to get much more than, you know, mid-twos to 3% for a reasonably high-quality investment-grade corporate bond portfolio today. So, you know, again, we think it, it's time to be cautious, and we do want to make sure that, you know, if, do, if we do get in a circumstance similar to the December of 2018, when really the credit markets were on sale, equities were under pressure. You know, we want to have dry powder to take advantage of those opportunities. How about new issues? Lisa and I, we keep seeing Bloomberg news stories about all the new <laughs> issuance coming in the investment grade market. 
Well, there has been been incredible demand, and I will say there are certain um, securities, especially within uh, the banking space, some perpetual preferred securities are getting done in that low 4% zip code. So, you know, that was levels of issuance that were unthinkable 12 months ago. But, you know, again, I do think the negative interest rates abroad um, really are steering uh, foreign investors to U.S. financial assets low treasury yield, steering investors to, to yield where they can get it anywhere. So even though we generally think bank credit quality is good, you know, some of some of the opportunities there are definitely uh, less attractive today. That's actually what's distracting me right now is the gap between two-year uh, bonds in the U.S. and Germany. Boy, it's just absolutely blown my mind. It's the lowest since <laughs> folks, uh, September is, of 2017. I'm actually completely <laughs> serious. But it's exactly your point, Mark, which is that basically uh, this is kind Confirmation, in my view, I, I mean, take it as you will. To me, this means that investors are coming over from Europe and coming into the U.S. and trying to take advantage of that gap. I could be wrong. My email address, if you want to write to me to tell me I'm wrong, Labramowitz at Bloomberg.net. Mark Happenstall, Chief Investment Officer of Penn Mutual Asset Management. Well, much of the focus on international trade has been between the U.S. and China, but there's also been rising rhetoric between the U.S. and France on a whole host of items, including wine. We have to figure out what's going on there. Nobody better to do that than with Tom Gearing. He's the chief executive officer and co-founder of Cult Wines Asset Management based in London. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Tell us what's going on potentially with the French wine market and tariffs. Yeah, good morning. Um, thanks so much for having me. Uh, well, I mean, obviously, the, the current sort of uh, impasse between the France and the US over the digital service tax was, uh, in one way, going to have an Im- a huge implication potentially uh, on the French wine industry. And uh, one particular region that I think would have suffered significantly would have been uh, Champagne region. Uh, the Champagne, for example, um, US represents the biggest uh, export market for, for 575 million euros. And the potential 100% tariff that they were looking to impose on French goods would have included uh, champagne could have been quite um, catastrophic, really, for the, for, the, for the champagne region and would have been, I mean, I don't think you can underestimate the seismic impacts that would have had on the global wine market and in particular, um, you know, the French wine market. But now that that sort of ceasefire has, um, has been established between the two sides, I think what people have sort of forgotten about is that there already are tariffs imposed on EU wines, in particular French wines. Uh, and these were po- imposed back in October um, as a result of the dispute over Airbus. So if you actually look at European wines, and in particular French wines, you know they've been under fire considerably over the last few months. And we've already started to see the impact um, those tariffs have had on French wines in the, in, in the global marketplace, and, and in particular the impact it's had with U.S. importers cancelling orders um, that they had placed, uh, cancelling on-premier futures contracts they had in place. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the uh, wine owners, wineries, uh, distributors, you know, in Europe are understandably worried. And similarly, in the U.S., you know, a lot of the importers, merchants, distributors, again, are, are very concerned about what's going to happen um, over, over the next few months. So I think even though this is, a, this is a good sign for the market, you know, that they've decided to, to hold fire, um, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. And it's, it's very finely poised. I have to ask the burning question in the room, Tom Gearing. How does one get into wine asset management? 
So, I mean, um, my, my, my background, my family were, were, were passionate wine collectors. It's something that I've known about for a long time. But I really believe in, in the financial viability of wine as a, as a diversification for an investment portfolio. You know, wine is a, as an asset class is a, is a tangible product. It's something that is um, fundamentally based on unique characteristics in that the greatest wines in the world are produced in very small quantities and they're consumed. So, uh, wine has a perfectly inverse supply curve. So there's, you know, there's there's a lot of history and romance around the product. But if you take some of that romanticism away and treat it as a financial asset, you know, it has a lot of potential uh, benefits to anyone investing it. So fine wine as an as, as, as an asset management um, uh, concept, I think it's something that's going to become more and more yeah. mainstream. Um, you know, over, over the years. Paul, I will say that I, I treat it as a viable asset in the evening. Often. <laughs> right. It does work. It does work. <laughs> so, Tom, what, what, what are you buying right now? What are the va- wines that are promising the value right now? Well, I mean, look, to keep it in the context of the conversation about the tariffs, um, you know, Italy, Italian wines, the best Italian wines have done extremely well. You know, they were the best performing sub-region last year in terms of price performance. Um, if you look at some of the best wines that are produced in northern Italy, in particular in Piedmont, where the Nebbiolo grape is, uh, you know, the grape that's grown um, more than most, the wines in that region have gone up uh, significantly in value. There's demand that's increasing because if you look at the quality of the wines that are being produced there, in comparison to say the, the equivalent of Grand Cru Burgundy, there's quite a significant price gap and there's quite a significant price disparity. And I think that globally, consumers, especially the top end of the market. Um, where prices have increased, um, in particular for French wines, in particular for you know, Burgundy Grand Cru, for example, people are now starting to look outside that for value. You know, where can I, where else in the where else in the world can I buy into really really high quality um, small production wines, but that can yeah. still deliver. Um, you know, outstanding uh, experience. Well, I guess that there's a question uh, about wine when you say that it's a financial asset. I mean, it is, but you can consume it. And there's a question, are people buying these uh, mainly as an investment vehicle? Do they expect them to be drunk at some point? I mean, is there a sort of that end goal or is it uh, that they are being increasingly treated as financial assets? Well, I mean, look, if you look at wine from a very basic perspective, you know, the great wines in the world are actually made to be drunk in 10, 15, 20 years. So they, they need someone to carry that cost. Um, they need someone to carry the cost of storage, of insurance of the wines and making sure that they're kept in the optimum conditions. So the fact that wine as an asset, as a, as a product, sorry, um, you know, increases over time in value in most cases um, provides uh, the holder, the person who's carrying the cost, um, a financial incentive to do so. So regardless of whether your intentions on day one are to buy for purely collection purposes or whether you're buying purely for drinking purposes, the fact that wine increases in value gives you the financial incentive to actually hold and store these wines, which can be quite a costly exercise. Um, so what I think is, you know, as altruistic as you can be as a wine connoisseur, sometimes you don't know how much your um, preferences or your objectives in life might change over time. So with wine, it's, uh, of course, first and foremost, a product that should be consumed, and a lot of people in the world are consuming these wines. Right. But from a secondary perspective, if you're, a, if you're a collector and you can get a financial benefit from doing so and end up drinking the wines for less in the future, or you can resell them and generate a profit, or you can come into the market as a pure investor and generate uh, a very low risk-adjusted yeah. return, then I think it all adds to the overall greatness of the asset. Tom Gearing, thank you so much for being with us. Tom Gearing, Chief Executive Officer of Cult Wines Asset Management, uh, joining us by phone.
Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options markets across all major asset classes. Visit your online broker and get started. See what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash podcast. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service. I want to get to a fascinating story here. President Donald Trump is again facing questions about his relationship with Mohammed bin Salman after the Saudi crown prince was accused of spying on Amazon.com chief Jeff Bezos. To get some more on this story, we welcome Justin Sink. Uh, Justin covers the White House for Bloomberg News. Justin, thanks so much for joining us. Talk to us about how this story is expanding from what was originally reported Jeff Bezos and the Saudi crown prince. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing now is, I think, a lot of pressure on the U.S. government to respond, uh, obviously, President Trump is still sort of facing the fallout from the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, who was the the Washington Post columnist who was uh, murdered in, inside a diplomatic facility. Uh, and this, again, has gone back. In some ways, this uh, latest controversy is like an amalgamation of all the sort of controversies of, of President Trump's tenure. So you've got... Uh, these concerns over, you know, closeness with Saudi Arabia, despite um, human rights violations. You've got his back and forth with Jeff Bezos and, uh, and Amazon, who President Trump himself has been frustrated with uh, because of the ownership of the, of the Washington Post. You've got this ongoing court case over whether, uh, you know, the, the Pentagon violated um, kind of a fair competition by giving Microsoft rather than Amazon this huge $10 billion uh, contract. And so I think a lot of attention is now turning to how President Trump's going to handle this because you would think uh, under normal circumstances, uh, a foreign government hacking the the richest man in, in the United States, the uh, head of a prominent American company, would be something that the U.S. government would respond to. Justin, there's also a question of cybersecurity. So putting aside the politics of whether President Trump responds to this, uh, there is a question of Saudi Arabia's capabilities in any potential friendship or contact from people close to the administration. We know that, for example, President Trump's son-in-law had some direct contact with Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, so I'm wondering, do we have any sense or better surveillance into knowing that other members perhaps of the government were not hacked by the Saudi Arabians in the same kind of way uh, that they are suspected of doing so with the richest man in America? Yeah, I mean, this is a real question here on the White House is, you know, they're, they're uh, is all this reporting about Jared Kushner and uh, and MBS speaking uh, with each other over WhatsApp? Uh, obviously, the Saudis have been sort of brazen, uh, at least allegedly. But uh, the, the one kind of point of caution that that some people have said during this is that the investigation into Jeff Bezos's phone was done by a an independent firm. It hasn't yet been reviewed by uh, outside government sources. We're not sure if the U.S. intelligence community has made the same. Uh, determination, and that that could explain some of the reticence so far by the White House and the administration to to publicly say anything about this. But my guess is that they are undertaking a security review, not just of what happened in the Bezos case, but if anything had happened that could potentially compromise U.S. security here. Um, the White House has said previously that that Jared's phone conversations were all properly documented and, and security measures were taken. But uh, I'm sure that this this case has sort of prompted uh, a new look at all that. 
What's interesting, I think the, uh, is there any sense that the U.S. government plans to launch an investigation or are they just going to sit on the sidelines and hope this maybe blows over? Yeah, I mean, certainly the public indication is, is the second. Um, uh, White House spokesman Hogan Gidley was asked about this yesterday. Uh, he said, you know, the, while the administration takes it seriously, the Saudis are an important ally. Uh, the president himself said he wasn't really familiar with the case, and, and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin uh, said it shouldn't stop American companies from continuing to work with and invest in Saudi Arabia. So uh, there's not yet kind of an indication that the that the U.S. is launching kind of a full-scale investigation or raising red flags in the way that the Obama administration, for instance, did after the sort of famous Sony hack um, by North Korea, which uh, ended up, you know, releasing a lot of embarrassing internal uh, documents and emails. Justin Sink of Bloomberg News, thank you so much for bringing us that. I do want to just give you an update on what's going on in markets. Right now, you're seeing oil prices fall. Uh, it's actually down now. Crude on the NYMAX, $54.28. That's down almost $10 yeah. from the end of last year. Meanwhile, you're seeing 10-year and two-year Treasury yields fall to their lowest since October, and there is a question of why. You've seen it, right? You know, seen equities rebound, certainly led by tech. You aren't seeing necessarily a massive bid in gold, and there is a question of why yields are constantly being pressed lower in the U.S. I do just have to say, I, I do find this interesting. The foreign bid, how much is that what's driving it, given the fact yep. that the ECB is on hold, possibly looking at more ways to stimulate inflation? Twenty nineteen in the rearview mirror, and what a year it was. We're starting off twenty twenty in generally a uh, similar type of fashion, a broad strength of financial markets across the board. Uh, let's see kind of what the big drivers are for twenty twenty going forward. We welcome Mark Lucini, chief investment strategist at Johnny Montgomery Scott based in Philadelphia. They have ninety billion dollars under management, so lots of money putting to work there. Mark, thanks so much for joining us on the phone. Again, we started out the year kind of like we ended it, some pretty good strength across the financial markets. How are you framing out the 2020 outlook? Sure. Well, I don't expect a repeat in 2020 of what we had in 2019, at least by way of order or magnitude, but directionally similar. And that is to say, I think that the U.S. economy is going to remain on sound footing. Uh, There are now, I think, increasingly uh, evidence of uh, better economic growth abroad. We had a slew of manufacturing numbers that came out uh, from the European area this morning, and they were all indicative of uh, month-over-month sequential improvement. And I think that is going to uh, largely play out in a fashion that allows investors and business leaders alike to see those better conditions framing an outlook for corporate earnings in 2020 to improve. And that should set the setting for risk assets to continue to march higher. Um, Although recognizing that uh, 90% plus of the move last year in the U.S. stock market was a result of multiple expansion rather than earnings growth. So it's really going to, I think, uh, be heavily reliant on that earnings picture to improve because without it, I don't expect we're going to see that kind of multiple expansion repeated this year. I'm old enough to remember when people said we were late cycle. Are we still late (laughs) cycle? (laughs) Well, we're later in the cycle than we were 10 years ago. Are we? Uh, Some people are actually saying that we've had other cycles. They're micro cycles that have cycled within cycles and therefore we're totally fine. And now we're starting a new cycle. 
Well, I mean, there is actually some oscillation that you can see in, for instance, the manufacturing cycle where they tend to ebb and flow in three-year periods where you have about 18 months of manufacturing activity advancing and then 18 months of slowing manufacturing activity. And so actually what we think we're seeing right now is that Nader being formed in that 18 months of a slowdown in manufacturing that should lead to improving numbers and therefore, I think, work up towards catching up to the data we've been getting out of the services side of the economy, which is much larger, uh, much less volatile than the manufacturing side. But together, that should lead to, a, once again, an improved outlook for uh, economic activity or the balance of this year. Well, Mark, I'm old enough to remember when valuations matter. When I think about the equity performance up uh, nearly 30% last year, I don't recall a lot of earnings growth accompanying that. So how should we be thinking about valuation in the equity markets right now? Well, there's a number of ways one can look at it. Uh, if you just simply look at the price to earnings multiple, we started this week with the S&P 500 trading at a precisely 19.0 times forward earnings for facts at S&P 500 estimates of a little over $175 for S&P 500 companies. We use year. Bloomberg uh, consensus. <laughs> well, it's probably not a number that's all that dissimilar. And as a right. consequence, it suggests that equity markets uh, certainly aren't cheap in here. But, you know, we've seen multiple expansion even up into the mid-20s in the midst of a bull market. Uh, and then you, when you take it into the context of also uh, kind of the, once again, the extension of the TINA principle, there is no alternative. When you look at bond yields, again, pressing lower than 1.7 on the tape, assuming that uh, I think what's concerning investors at the moment is the coronavirus uh, tends to uh, wane over some period of time uh, without it obviously uh, infesting uh, conditions to the point where uh, equity markets need to sell us more to reconcile to the concerns that this will impact on a more permanent pace, basis global growth, um, then I think that the market can sustain this multiple, if not even again, uh, expand somewhat. Mark, what's your most contrarian call for 2020? Well, I think obviously one would be the emergence of inflation. Um, you know, it's been hibernating now for the better part of a decade, and it's probably the one thing that has the least consensus around the expectation that we'll ever see it again. Uh, you can look at that by way of the tips yields at uh, 1.6, 1.7 on the tenure. Um, you can look at it by way of Fed policy, you know, with uh, their earmarking risk to um, the downside rather than the upside. And there are obviously lengthy pause in any kind of rate adjustments. Um, and so I think that would be the one thing that given the tightness in the labor markets and any improvement economically um, that we could see potentially emerge, uh, certainly not in the near future, but maybe out over the balance of uh, 2020 into 2021. So, Mark, as I think about it, as you know, Lisa and I were talking about we're late in what is typically, you know, uh, a late in the cycle, if you think about 10 or 11 years of this economic cycle. Are there sectors that you like here more than others, maybe given where we are in the economic cycle, maybe where we are in terms of valuation? Well, I think if you look at the sectors that had uh, recently shown some signs of life again, um, they're indicative of this improvement that we're recognizing here that I think is still less than convincing among uh, market participants, but I think evolving in a way that says that one would want to have a more pro-growth, more pro-cyclical stance. So sectors like industrials, for instance, look appealing to us. Uh, energy would also fall into that camp, but it's got its own idiosyncratic issues. Um, Material stocks would fall into that camp as well. It would uh, financials, um, those that are winning on a day like today when you have this 
you know, rather violent rotation from risk on to risk off, the utilities, consumer staples, real estate investment trusts make sense as a risk haven if you're going to be long equities at the moment. But at the same time, their valuations have expanded to the point where they look exceedingly rich to us. And unless this environment is going to stay, once again, where investors are on their heels um, from an investment standpoint, they look the least appealing among all the sectors in the S&P 500. Mark Lachini, uh, Chief Investment Strategist, Jenny Montgomery Scott, uh, joining us. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Jenny Montgomery Scott with $90 billion uh, of assets under management from Philadelphia. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Johann Schmiegel, you've got the world's highest IQ. Yes, 247. Wow. Did you know that thanks to Salesforce with Einstein AI, everyone's smarter? Now everyone's an Einstein, just like you. But I'm the smartest. Not anymore. With connected data and trusted AI, everyone can give customers experiences they've only dreamed of. Oh, look, here's a few Einsteins now. Hey, hi. Hola, amigo. Everyone's an Einstein? It's okay, Johan. Let it happen. The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.